Welcome to Road to Consensus, the podcast designed to help you get smart before Consensus 2019. I'm your host, Nolan Bowerly, and today we're joined by J. Christopher Giancarlo, Chairman of the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. It's Coindesk's great honor to have the chairman of the CFTC, Christopher Giancarlo, in with us today for what amounts to an exit interview related to cryptocurrencies. So welcome to Coindesk Studio One. It's great to be here. So we'll jump right in. You were involved in a very historic moment in cryptocurrencies and the rise of this market in 2017. There seemed to be a, a, a rush on your part with this historic rise um, to add the ability to short this instrument. The runaway speculation must have been a concern to your office. Was there a feeling of urgency at the time to make sure that there was a way that this instrument could be bet against? Yeah. So, so it was actually, it was a fascinating time. That whole period in 2017, we certainly were observing the, the breaking away of the Bitcoin uh, market value from its fundamentals, which, which I've always believed to be uh, associated with its cost of production, uh, as, as in most assets. There's a set of fundamentals in the case of this cryptocurrency. It's the cost of production. And you can observe that almost from its inception all the way to the spring of 2017, a correlation. Um, It was trading at a premium to the cost of production, but certainly moving in correlation. And that correlation broke free sometime in, in, as I say, the spring of 2017 and by uh, the summer of 2017 was a runaway train away from its, its fundamental production cost. And at the same time, uh, the CFTC had been approached by two of our key exchanges, the the, the CME and uh, CBOE, about launching a uh, a derivative, um, a future on on Bitcoin. The way it works in our marketplace, we're a principles based regulator, and we we work through our self regulatory organizations, which are our exchanges. Our exchanges come to us, and this is somewhat unique amongst market regulators the world round. We don't approve new products. What we do is we rely on the self regulatory organization, the SRO, to tell us and self certify that the product meets our core principles. We then will do a review to confirm for ourselves that that's generally true, but at the end of the day, it's on them to say the product meets the qualifications. As an aside, because of that approach, we've seen 12,000 new products self-certified in the last 18 years. And that's by design. And that's by design. Very different. So so one of our senior uh, people at at the agency used to work at the Indian uh, Derivatives Exchange. And he tells me in that same period of time, they've had, you know, several dozen products. Because in each case over there, the regulators approve the product. Mm-hmm. Well, if politicians have to approve a product, they never will because mm-hmm. there's too much political risk in approving a product that people may lose money in. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why the designers of our system took it, in a sense, out of the regulator's hands mm-hmm. and placed it in the SRO's hands. So it sounds like you had some sensitivities towards the benefits of decentralization from the start. Absolutely. And, and, and I think one of the reasons why the CFTC has been a bit more progressive in this area is because we approach things on a principles basis and on a decentralized basis. So that's mm-hmm. a bit of an aside. But so we observed the rise of Bitcoin's value. And at the same time, we were, we were entertaining two of these self-certifications. Now, because this is a product unlike others we had seen before, we engaged in what we called heightened review. So mm-hmm. we did a particularly deeper dive than we do normally into that self-certification to confirm. And we, we've announced six elements of our, self, of our heightened review process for, for new cryptocurrency derivatives. 
But in this case, they satisfied our requirements. And what was fascinating is we, as market uh, overseers, as, as students of markets, and myself as a, as a real aficionado of markets, were really fascinated to see whether market theory would hold that the uh, launch of a derivative would actually, in a sense, have the effect of allowing institutional money to short that, that heightened valuation that we were seeing during this bubble and would have the result of bringing it more back into correlation with the fundamentals of the cost of production. And sure enough, the day Bitcoin futures launched on CME was December 19, 2017, and that's the day Bitcoin hit its high water mark of $19,050. And from there, over the next six months, you saw Bitcoin come back into correlation. And by um, the summer of 2018, and since then, Bitcoin has been back in correlation with the cost of production. Now, that correlation is inverse, so it's rather than trading at a premium to the cost of production, it's now trading at a discount. But it's back in correlation. When, when the cost goes up, the, the moves are moving back in correlation. So the launch of the future has achieved what, what students of pure markets, without even being aficionados of, of crypto assets, would, would have assumed. And you don't have to take my word for it. The San Francisco Fed did a study which looked at this very thing and has actually said that the reason uh, we've seen that. Now, there may be people that are strong supporters of, of Bitcoin that are disappointed that that's happened. You know, as a market regulator, it's not our job to say where the right value is. If you believe in your markets, mm-hmm. markets should say where the right value is. What I would say to those who are upset about this uh, return to the mean is I think that's actually in the long term healthier for crypto assets. The worst thing that could have happened is a bubble could have continued from 19000 to 190000 and then popped. Mm-hmm. And there would have been a lot more... Uh, uh, d- d- value destruction, people would have lost serious money, and um, then you could have had a rush to some sort of judgments. There are no shortage of of regulators and government officials that uh, world round that would like to suppress crypto assets, and I think a bigger bubble bursting would have given life to those efforts. Now, I think back into a correlation with the cost, uh, with with the pure value, with fundamentals, we can take a longer term view to get the necessary pieces in place for the long term development and, and flourishing of, of these this new asset class. Well, I, I think you're right about that, and I think a lot of it, it's almost a misconception. I, I did a lot of news interviews as the prices came down, and and you know people would say, oh, is the, is the community upset? And I would say, not actually. A lot of these people want price. They they they're very boastful and proud of the fact that Bitcoin has always been about price discovery, that the price of Bitcoin is really what a person is willing to buy and sell the asset for. And if you have these more sophisticated instruments, you have a much more accurate sense of what the price is. That's exactly right. You know, and, and in very mature markets, um, the futures, the derivative, often is one of the key price determinants. And uh, until you have a functioning, healthy derivative market in any asset class, you, the, the, the asset class itself has not reached a level of maturity. Mm-hmm. So we're ne- that's another element of maturity that the launch of, of the futures has brought to this. And I think you're going to see more swap products, uh, some binary options, others. And it's all for the better in the long term. Mm-hmm. But in the short term, well, that's that's sure. that's that's um, that's the growth of an asset class. Now, I, I want to pick up on that one thread you mentioned about the fundamentals. And, and this question, I suppose, is a little bit out of left field, so there is no, I think, right answer or wrong answer here. 
but what I'm wondering is, you know, we look at a lot of data in this industry, and we're seeing a huge trend now in um, traders and market analysts looking at contributions on GitHub, for example, to show what kind of entrepreneurial energy is being directed at a decentralized engineering project in order to grow it. So what are the incentives there that allow people to come in? And now, you know, you definitely, one of the fundamentals certainly is hash rate. No one would ever deny that. But I wonder if your organization has started to look and open its mind to new types of data fundamentals like the entrepreneurship that can be viewed on a platform like GitHub. Yeah. Well, so if you're asking me what is the mixture of fundamentals that go into that, I mean, clearly cost of production is one, but it's not the only one. Um, I, I think that for a time there was also a huge just expectation of it's only going to go get better, right? You, you know, you don't want, don't want to be the last one in, you know, get in while it's going. And so I think that drove it. I think there was a lot. And I think some of that has now come off. And I think that may account for why we went from a valuation premium to a valuation discount right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, again, it's all part, this is, you know, People may think of this in years, but you know, in 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 the life of asset classes, this is very a very short-lived thing, and mm-hmm. so we're still in the very early stages of evolution. I, I you know I I always think back to you know when I first wandered through the internet, I was using something called Netscape Navigator. Nobody remembers what that is anymore because it's been replaced by much more sophisticated search engines. But you know, we don't even know whether the instruments that are before us today, ten years from now, may be replaced by. Much more sophisticated instruments, but these are the ones that are testing, and probing, and 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 we're exploring in. And so it's a it's a fascinating time to be engaged in this. But I think it's still very very early. It's certainly early, and and that I think brings me to uh, another question that I think is really interesting and important about your public role and the CFTC's public awareness campaign around this entire asset class. Now. I mean, if you look at the numbers, we're pretty small still relatively to, to relative to the other markets that you're regulating. Is it that you guys find this thing so interesting that you have put this kind of ammo behind it? You've got Commissioner Contends, who is yeah. doing a great job. He's out in all kinds of forums, participating in all kinds of these conferences. You've come to our office here today. What was it about the asset class that got you guys to, let's say, uh, put that kind of, of uh, momentum and enthusiasm behind for the public awareness campaign that you guys have done? Well, so, so some of it is personal. Some of it is, you know, I've always been a student of technology. When I when I practiced law years ago, um, my practice was a, a technology based practice. When I uh, uh, went into business, uh, we were we were the first. Um, old-fashioned voice trading platform to launch electronic trading systems. And so uh, I have a personal interest in technology innovation. Uh, Commissioner Quintens, you know, when he first came to the commission, took over the TAC committee and really took it with gusto and is really driving it hard. And he has an interest in, in, in technology. So I think some of it is, is, is just tone at the top. But even more fundamentally, as an agency, that notion of being a principles-based regulator is really important, meaning that we don't approach our markets from a point of view of we're a regulator of wheat futures or interest rate swaps. We approach it, we are a a market regulator of asset classes. And so whether it's crypto assets or whether it's something, you know, it it may be, I could see us getting into... um, uh, space uh, products or space cargo or, or, you know, in the future, we don't consider ourselves 
asset class specific, we consider ourselves a market overseer of derivative markets. And so we're always looking, if you apply principles, you apply them to whatever is coming down. So we're always open to the next thing. And because of that tradition of, as I said, 12,000 new products self-certified in 18 years, we're always looking at new products. We look at several hundred new products a year that range from everything from old-fashioned ags to some of the most sophisticated volatility-based products that you need a schematic just to diagram to understand. And so we're always in the new product analysis role. And, and, And yet, we don't sit back and say, is this good for society or not? Congress took that away from us and handed that to the, to the self-regulatory organizations. So we're not in a sense of a blocking mechanism. We're in an understanding mode. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, that we launched two years ago at the commission is our new Lab CFTC. And the goal of Lab CFTC is really to enhance that ability, that traditional ability of looking at new products, but to take it to the next level of bringing real technologists into the agency, like our great George Pullen and 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 uh, Dan Gorfine and 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 Bianca Gomez and others with Lab CFTC that are really uh, bringing a new edge to our ability to understand new products. So it's so, it's so an exciting time. Lab CFTC is is focused on internal education, um, external education both, a bit. It's both, both external and external. So so. When you think about a government agency, you think about a white limestone building with with a big brass door in the center that you've got to go through. And, you know, through that door go exchange operators, go clearing houses, go other regulators. But there's no door that says innovators enter here. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, lab CFTC is when we took a, you know, a sledgehammer to that limestone wall and burst, burst a wall through, a door through that says innovators come in here. Come in here and meet people that talk tech, that understand what you're saying. Some, somebody, that, um, I can't remember his name right now, at uh, R3 said to me, he goes, he goes, wow, I couldn't believe I met with your guys and your guys were talking fintech smack. I said, well, that's great. If we're talking fintech mm-hmm. smack, then mm-hmm. we're, we're finally doing something right. Mm-hmm. So um, that was the goal, is to have people that could, that could understand intuitively, can really get into the weeds, um, that, that you know, read white papers on their weekend mm-hmm. and, 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 and really understand it. And that's what we did with Lab CFTC. So some of the labs around the world have added sandboxes to test out products, but would that be a poor fit for you guys just because you do have this self-regulatory aspect to your market? Is that one of the reasons why you decided to remain educational? Yeah, so we look very carefully at the, at, the, at the sandbox model. The sandbox model really works well for rules-based regulatory regimes because what they need is they need like an, like an alternative path. They need a, a, a alt uh, uh, thing. Because we're principles-based and because we have something that's really important called no-action relief, we don't really need a sandbox. What we need to do is understand test drive, which is why we kind of call it a lab, Mm -hmm. understand it, and then think about how our principles apply. And if there's an area where either a a regulation doesn't fit, we can use no action relief. But what we don't do, unlike sandbox approaches, is say, wow, that innovation is not terribly interesting, Mm -hmm. but this one is interesting. No picking winners. No picking winners. So this one can go in our sandbox. That one has to go through our normal rules. Mm -hmm. We approach everybody that comes through the door on a principles basis, and we use Lab CFTC so we can get there faster in understanding. So it's both external, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people can come in, but then it's also that internal. So Lab CFTC has spent more time on Capitol Hill 
than any other regulatory unit explaining fintech to our colleagues in Congress, in the House, in the Senate, in the administration, and giving presentations. So um, it, it does that communication role as well as that external um, uh, speaking to innovators. So when you mentioned some of these um, principles-based approaches, I've noticed that one of the principles out there is do no harm. Yes. Allow these markets to be created if they can be created. If there is a market there and someone is willing to create it, then let's see if it can work. I wonder if in the cryptocurrency world, there is an embracing of this do no harm because you do see a potential for this to start entering into your own uh, business functions. I shouldn't say business functions, your own regulatory functions. Is there much discussion internally about the ability to can some of the qualities of this technology in order to deploy it in what you guys are there to do? Absolutely. So, so a little history of do no harm. Do no harm actually has a really important tradition in American regulation because that was the stated policy in a bipartisan manner under the Clinton presidency and a Republican Congress back in the 1980s. And the approach of do no harm was what was applied to the internet. So we had our first, you know, uh, internet of information and the, 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 the stated policy of this government, both both parties, was to do no harm and look at the results that led to. So, in fact, I hearkened back to that in a speech I gave at the Cato Institute, and I think it was it was 2015 or 2016, to talk about uh, DLT, distributed ledger technology. And I then said that I thought a DLT was a fundamental uh, movement forward because it would allow not just an inf- internet of information, but an internet of value transference. And I felt that what we needed to do was have a bipartisan agreement to do no harm to this. And one of the things I talked about is exactly what you just said. DLT has enormous uh, promise throughout the economy, but has enormous promise for regulators. I was on the floor of the world's largest credit default swap trading platform in the fall of 2008 when uh, global banks were teetering on collapse. And I remember getting a call from a regulator with one of the major U.S. bank regulators, I don't want to say which one, two days before Lehman collapsed. And the regulator, I'll never forget the call, the regulator said to me, hi, it's so-and-so over at, you know, federal agency X. Um, Remind me what you guys do again. And I said, well, we're the largest trading platform for credit default swaps. He said, oh, yeah, that's, that's what I thought you did. That's, that's why I'm calling. I got the right guy. He said, now, what are you seeing in credit default swap protection against names like Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers? And so I said, you know, we're looking at four or 500 basis points to, to get protection against it. Now, for those who don't necessarily understand derivatives, what that meant was People that were exposed to those banks, because maybe they, they lent to them, were fearful that they would fall, and, they, and, and, and to buy protection, you had to pay more and more. And I explained to this regulator that by the hour and by the minute, that level of protection was going up. And to us, that is the warning signs, you know, flashing red lights saying, these banks are in danger of collapsing any day now. There's a type of force of nature or gravitational pull that's at work that, that no lever of government can fix. Well, well, let me come back to that, actually. So what this regulator said to me was, that's fascinating. 
I'd like to talk to you about it more. Can you come by our lower Manhattan offices? And I said, um, sure. But I said, I'm not getting out of our office till eight or nine o'clock tonight. I'll come by then. He said, oh, no, no, no. I'm way too busy. Um, why don't you come by in October sometime? Look out your calendar. And I'm thinking this, I mean, it turns out Lehman fell three days later, right? So, but the point is, I'm not faulting fellow regulars. What I'm saying is that the best we had 10 years ago to determine the aggregate risk exposure of one bank to the other was regulators picking up the phone and calling trading platforms to understand what was going on. No visibility. No visibility. Now, imagine, and at that time, it was believed that there was about $400 billion of credit default swaps written about the failure of Lehman Brothers. And so, and so the fear was, if Lehman failed, it would be like a cascading series of failures. We now know, through hard analysis, that that $400 billion, when you netted it all down, is less than $9 billion. Now, if it would have taken only $9 billion to save Lehman Brothers, the whole response to the crisis could have been completely different. But we didn't know that. And here's the punchline. If we had distributed ledger technology then, we would have known in an instant that while the gross exposure was $400 billion, the net exposure was less than $9 billion. That information would have transformed that crisis into a, probably a solvable problem and not a global financial meltdown. A little oil in the chain instead of rebuilding the engine. Well, let's put it this way. A schematic of the engine that would have told us exactly where the problem was, exact, instead of sort of having to take it apart piece by piece to see how everything fit together. Mm-hmm. What DLT would allow regulators to do is to see all the exposures of our financial institutions, who's exposed to what, and then where they're offset, either by clearing margin or netted out by other trades. We have a complex global financial system with with good data and, even more importantly, with the distributed ledger technology telling us who's connected to who, our ability in a crisis to address that crisis in a digital fashion as opposed to an analog fashion would, would just be a quantum leap forward. And so the point I'm making is that uh, I, we believe that do no harm to DLT is critically important. Um, now, DLT also, um, uh, you know, is, is integrated critically into, you know, d- digital assets, as we know. But just that piece of the pie is one that I think regulators really have to do. And I think that w- there is a growing consensus amongst regulators in the U.S. and globally. The distributed ledger technology is, is, is a quantum breakthrough, and it's something that we need to adapt to. And we at the CFTC are hopeful that a piece of legislation in Congress right now would, would, that would grant us the ability to participate in distributed ledger proofs of concepts um, can move forward so we can do that. That would be a really big advance for us. Uh, I think our industry would love to see that in action. We want to make it happen. Um, so I would be remiss if I didn't uh, bring up the tremendous and fun nickname you've earned in this industry. And I think it came back to the impassioned um, statements you said uh, before the Senate, I believe it was, uh, about a year ago, where you mentioned your children and the, the uh, tremendous interest they'd had in this. And then the reflection you had that these were the types of questions and, and interest you'd wished to cultivate amongst a younger generation for, for many years, and all of a sudden it was happening naturally. 
Do you see this interest in this asset class from these young people as a, a great benefit to this industry? And I'll, and I'll bring up a, a fellow like Peter Brandt, who will be speaking at our event, um, who's also said the same thing. You have this wonderful generation of retail traders that are learning the ins and outs of charting and markets and, 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 and all this stuff. Is this uh, something that you have taken a great deal of personal interest in? And, and I think uh, an, an interesting uh, side note that you became a celebrity because of all this with, with a, a, a bunch of young, enthusiastic people. Yeah, so uh, the story is, 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 is simply one. We, you know, we went through that self-certification process for Bitcoin futures in the fall of 2017, and it was still very much fresh in my mind when um, we did our annual family ski trip uh, with, with my three brothers and all of their kids, so all of my nieces and nephews plus my own children, and we spent a wonderful week skiing out in Colorado. And the kids were all talking about uh, about Bitcoin, um, and since we had just been involved in the Bitcoin futures, you know, the conversation at every dinner was, "Tell us about Bitcoin. How's it work?" And I was really struck by the level of interest uh, amongst a group of, of twenty and young thirty-year-olds, and it struck me that their interest was something I hadn't seen in other financial markets. So, so I've always tried to interest my kids in stocks and, and the stock market and others, and their interest was, was lukewarm. But on this, there was real interest. And it struck me that it's more than just about a hot asset class. It was about something really fundamental. You know, this is a, it's, it's a generation that's grown up with complete facility with the internet, with complete facility with mobile devices, with instantaneous communications, with the ability to interact with people all over the world as if they're just across the street. Um, and, um, a, and and it's some, maybe, maybe some of the ones a little older in their 30s, a, a sense of disappointment from the financial crisis and a lack of uh, perhaps respect for traditional engines of market control. And the notion of decentralizing them was really on their minds. And so I had all those impressions when I returned in January and within a few days was noticed to appear at a Senate hearing alongside Jay Clayton of the SEC in front of the Senate Banking Committee. And in preparing for that hearing, I did what any self-respecting chairman of an agency did. I prepared a 60-page report to Congress, uh, testimony, and um, and then as you know, in these hearings, you deliver your written testimony, but then you've just got five minutes, which is basically 500 words, to give your opening statement. And so the night before the hearing, I had this 60-page report in front of me, and I'm trying to summarize it down. And I just said, you know what? I pushed that aside. And I said, I'm just going to talk to them just like a person. And so when, when my microphone went green in front of that, uh, you know, the, the, the 25 senators, I said, um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you allow me to speak to you for a moment, not as the chairman of an agency, but just as a dad, I said, um, we've all come away from our holidays breaks, and probably you've heard the same conversations at your table that I did. Everybody's talking about Bitcoin. And, and I said, I think, as, as, you, as you take up these proceedings, that this interest, we have to acknowledge it's real. And I think we owe this new generation the respect to give this a serious look and not just be dismissive or wave it away or treat it like it's just some new fad. This, there's something very fundamental here and very fundamental to our, our, our families and our new generation. And let's give it that our time and our attention. And you know, I made it. It was just a very honest uh, plea. In fact, uh, the chairman of the committee, uh, Senator Crapo, said to me, "I was. I've had those same dinner table conversations myself." 
And, and that's when um, my Twitter following exploded from, I think, 1,500 to almost 50,000 in, in a matter of a week mm-hmm. and uh, earned the title of Crypto Dad. Uh, there was a lot of other names. I prefer Crypto Dad to some of the others, but um, uh, that was, that was a, an exciting moment. And suddenly my children were able to, at Father's Day, to buy me T-shirts with my, with my face on them that they would find on the Internet and all kinds of crazy things. But, um, I, you know, it was, it was just a genuine, honest belief. It was one of those moments. Who would have thought that... Um, you would get a, a Twitter following from a Senate hearing. Uh, but anyway, it's good well, fun. It was, it was live in our office. So um, we would like to take the uh, opportunity to thank you for that and for all you've done for the industry uh, until now. And uh, hopefully uh, your successor has, uh, you have your successor's ear, and uh, we continue to get the uh, the, the interest and, and enthusiasm that, uh, that we would all like to see. I think you will continue to see the CFTC out in front of these issues because of the, uh, because of its um, principles-based DNA mm-hmm. because of its new innovation um, uh, comfort level. I think you will see the CFTC remain a leader in this, and, and most importantly, because of our lab CFTC initiative. So I think you're going to see the CFTC out in front on these issues in the years to come. Thanks so much for joining us today, Chairman. Thank you. That's it for Episode 5 of Road to Consensus. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the content... You can get a lot more of it if you register for Consensus at Consensus2019.com. Listeners can also use the code ROAD200 and get $200 off a ticket. Join us for our next episode with guest Edward Woodford, CEO and co-founder of SeedCX. See you at Consensus May 13th to 15th in New York City.